Hey everybody, this is James Kent from DoseNation.com. I wanted to welcome you to episode 28 and give you a little warning that this episode of the podcast will be especially strange since our guest is John Lear. And if you don't know who John Lear is, you will definitely by the end of this interview, and you may be interested in checking out more about what he has to say. So Jake Kettle, the producer of the Dose Nation podcast, used to do a show called Truth Transmission, where he interviewed people on paranormal and strange topics, like, you know, aliens, UFOs, ghosts, remote viewing, etc., that kind of stuff. So he's gone through the gamut of these sorts of interviews, and he wanted to see what I thought about what John Lear had to say, because at one point in my life, I was a very avid alien and UFO enthusiast. In fact, I've told a couple people that for a period of time... A few years back, I basically read every single piece of UFO literature available on the Internet, and I don't think that's an overstatement. I think I read every single document related to UFOs available on the Internet, including conspiracy sites and, um, you know, official reports, news reports, fiction, uh, fictionalized accounts, abduction accounts, uh, everything. So I figured out who all the players were in the UFO field and John Lear's name kept coming up. So this is the first time that I've ever had a chance to talk to John Lear and get him to uh, tell me firsthand what it is he really believes, and I don't even really want to speculate on anything that he talks about in this interview, because it is all so far out of my field and so far out of left field that uh, it's it's impossible for me to even, even uh, comment on the veracity or validity of anything he has to say, other than it just sounds crazy to me. So um, you can make your own judgments based on what he has to say. Uh, Jake and I have had many discussions trying to figure out whether John actually believes what he says, and if he does, does that make him crazy, or does that make him somebody who knows something that we don't? And uh, we've come to the conclusion that um, we're not sure what it is about John, but uh, enjoy the interview. Depending on where you are in the world, welcome to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and thanks for joining us. With me, as always, is founder of DoseNation.com and author of Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason, James Kent. James, how are you? I'm doing great today. I think this is going to be an interesting talk. I've uh, been fascinated with these issues for a long time, so uh, it'll be good to have a chance to talk with our special guest today. Yeah, so let's uh, let me introduce today's guest. John Lear, a captain uh, for a major U.S. airline, has flown over 160 different types of aircraft in over 50 different countries. He holds 17 world speed records uh, in the Lear jet and is the only pilot ever to hold every airline certificate issued by the Federal Aviation Administration. Mr. Lear has flown missions worldwide for the CIA and other government agencies. A former Nevada state senator, he is the son of William P. Lear, designer of the Learjet uh, executive airplane, the 8-track stereo, and founder of Lear Siegler Corporation. Lear became interested in the subject of UFOs after talking with United States Air Force personnel who had witnessed a UFO landing at Bentwaters Air Force Base near London, England, and three small aliens walking up to the wing commander. John, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Jake. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's uh, great to have you on and to talk with you again. Um, you know, the first thing, I, well, first, let's just uh, ask you, uh, where are you calling from today? Uh, I'm in Las Vegas, where I live. And um, so let's jump into to, to, to today's topics. How did you initially become interested in UFOs? Uh, you, you, your, your biography mentions the Bentwaters Air Force Base incident near London. And that's not that's not a, an incident that I'm particularly familiar with. So, so could you go into that a little bit and tell us um, what happened and why you found it so interesting? 
Well, the Bentwaters case was where the, uh, uh, on Christmas of 1980, uh, an object landed there at uh, Bentwaters. And um, one of the colonels, Colonel Halt, went out and investigated it. And uh, it became a, uh, a really interesting deal over three days. And there were several people involved, uh, airmen from the uh, base. And it just grew viral of um, of interest of what they found. Colonel uh, Halt wrote a memo to the uh, MOD there. And uh, it just... Uh, uh, it was just very interesting thing. But before that, <clears throat> I had been interested in UFOs, but I determined that, that they didn't exist and it wasn't worth um, looking at. And then in 1985, I was over at a friend's house and noticed a book called uh, Missing Time by Bud Hopkins. And I picked that up and I read it that night. As a matter of fact, that night I had a, <clears throat> I was uh, flying a flight to uh, Cleveland uh, for American Trans Air. And I read that thing and it just made the hairs on my neck stand up because, um, uh, it was so, it was so real. I knew that that, that's, those, these abductions were real. And, uh, that led me on to, uh, 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 investigating, uh, a whole bunch of different things. In those days, of course, we didn't have the internet <clears throat> and I had to uh, drive my truck. Uh, I went to Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. All these different places where you could uh, interview people one-on-one, uh, which you couldn't do over telephone, and of course there was no internet. Hey, so, can I back up just a quick second here and ask about previous to, I guess this uh, Bentwater case was in 1980, you say? Yeah. Okay, so previous to that, you had flown all over the world with, I'm guessing, dozens if not hundreds of pilots. During that time of your commercial service and contracting with the CIA and et cetera, did you ever run across pilots who had had UFO sightings, like bogeys track them or, um, you know, these kind of classic tales that you hear? Uh, very, few, very few, very few, and I didn't initiate a discussion with them. Right, so so up until that Bentwater case, it's just, it had just been sort of a kind of a mythical fascination instead of, right. uh, and then it just sort of became, you had some evidence that maybe there was something real behind it, and you decided to track it down. Yeah, see, when I grew up, uh, it was a big deal in uh, the early 50s. And my dad, of course, uh, unbeknownst to me, was um, on the, the major prime contractor for anti-gravity with the uh, uh, Department of Defense. And he always had people around the house that had seen uh, uh, UFOs. Uh, but uh, I just, uh, for some reason, uh, didn't get all that interested until later. Okay, go ahead, Jake. So, I want to talk a little bit about Bentwaters and 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 the UFO and the craft that 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 landed there, because I I don't know very much about the case and 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 you were very interested in it. So, what what type of craft um, landed at at Bentwater um, through the research that you've done and you know through the um, uh, uh, you know reports that were issued? What what type of craft landed at Bentwaters? Um, and what type of aliens uh, walked up to the wing commander? I mean, what are the what what are the what were the details of that situation? Okay, well, first of all, I'm not sure they walked up to the wing commander, but at least three of them got out of the top of this thing. I don't think it was a disc shape. I think it was more oval shaped, and um, <clears throat> they uh, they just uh, landed. It was filmed uh, by the uh, Air Force, and of course, that film is uh, somewhere, unbeknownst to us. The, the U.S. But, Air Force or the Royal yeah, Air Force? U.S. Air Force. See, we had a base there at Bentwaters. Uh, we had... Uh, is this <clears> the, all connected to the Rendlesham sightings or is this... That, yeah, that is. That's the Rendlesham Forest. Oh, it is. This is the same This is the same episode that we're talking about. Yeah. The Rendlesham Forest in the... Okay. Uh, okay, okay. I'm very familiar with that. So you can... Yeah, keep... Yeah, so they... Yeah, I remember this report. Go on. If I remember correctly, didn't uh, one of the, uh, one of the uh, guys actually go up and touch the craft in, in, the, in the forest? Um, and, it, it, and it was very strange. They said it just kind of opened up and... At least from the limited reading that I did, um, you know, on, on Rendlesham Forest. But... And, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but that whole area was locked down for quite some time, wasn't it? Uh, right. af, 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 after the after that landing. Yeah, and uh, I I drove there about ten years later, 
And of course, the, the whole forest was gone. It was just barren land. So they had pretty much wiped out any evidence that could have been there. Oh, so they actually wiped out the forest. Yeah. The forest is gone. Right. Wow. I, well, that wasn't necessarily an, an air force. I mean, that could have just been development. Or, or, or are you saying that was a deliberate cover up? Deliberate cover up, removing no. the forest. Or no, I just, just that's I'm just, just progress. <laughs> no, I'm just reporting what I saw. Uh, I, I don't see. know why okay. it was done. So there's the incident at Bentwaters Air Force Base, and then w- there's a th- there's a story that that uh, you've talked uh, that you've told a couple of times uh, in past interviews. Uh, about your experience with Bob Lazar and Groom Lake. Now, did, did that happen before or after um, Rendlesham Forest? No, that was way after. That okay. was in 1988. Okay, so let's jump then a little bit. So, 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 well, so he spent some time. You said he were driving around Arizona and Nevada and and looking for abdu- abductees to interview. Like no, uh, not, a, not necessarily abductees, just people who had knowledge. Uh, for instance, uh, <clears throat> the guy in uh, uh, Albuquerque, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, I can't really see. Uh, he, uh, he had um, regressed, not regressed, but, but been there while uh, some people were being regressed. Uh, and that's when uh, the, uh, the subject of Dulcie came up. Ben, I see. Benowitz. Benowitz, that's what was his name. And what is Dulce? Uh, Dulce is the underground base uh, in Dulce, New Mexico. And that was the, uh, that is the primary uh, alien slash uh, U.S. Uh, uh, investigative place for aliens. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's about uh, a mile deep and there's uh, seven levels there. And all kinds of interesting things go on there. Well, you know what? I want to actually explore this a, a little more now that you talk about it. So let's let's explore this base a little bit. Um, since you brought it up, you said there are seven levels to this base, and this is where most of the most of the major research into UFO craft and aliens are going on. Is, right? Is it this base? And there's uh, and there's underground uh, railways that go from uh, Groom Lake to uh, Dulce, Dulce to Los Alamos. And, uh, Los Alamos to, um, Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. And there's also, um, underground that connect with, uh, Edwards Air Force Base and, uh, different places in the, uh, in the Mojave and Kern County, um, uh, bases there. So all of these bases are connected and the major research is being done at one. And you said that there were, there were. No, no, can, now, how long have those underground tunnels been there? Those weren't completed until, I mean, back in the seventies or eighties, were they? Yeah. Some or, of them were, uh, there before. Some of them, uh, we built. Uh, there's one that the Navy found, uh, and its base was, uh, in San Diego and they found a, uh, underground transport system they could just get in these little uh, pods and uh, go anywhere they wanted in the world in, in a matter of uh, minutes so this is an underground network railroad that was built by some ancient species or or by aliens at some distant point in history yeah it must have been I mean human tech I mean obviously human technology wouldn't have been capable of uh, ca- capable of outputting that kind of uh, of system. I mean, at least in in recorded history, so it it, it would have to and be. And these and these rail systems were more or less abandoned, you say, so they could just be used by anybody who wanted to use them. Yeah, apparently, the Earth is uh, thirteen billion years old, and there have been many civilizations, uh, many of which were far more advanced than we were, and uh, for whatever reason, they get uh, um, terminated or wiped out for a period of time, and then they start another civilization and we're just mankind is just one of the uh long you know a uh, one of the uh civilizations uh, in a long line history of civilizations like uh uh all the different ones that we hear about 
it, it's interesting that you bring that up because the Hopi have a uh, have a have a have a myth that there were different ages and different worlds that came before ours, and that these ages they begin and they end, and when they end, a new civilization arises, a new set of circumstances arises as we move from, you know, the first age into the second age and things like that. Is there any connection you think possibly between the Hopi legends of these ages and um, the the actual history of the earth? Oh, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine was uh, involved in researching one of the uh, entrances to, um, it was on Indian land, Native American land, <clears throat> and it's where the uh, little Colorado River branches off from the uh, Colorado River, and a couple hundred feet up on the side of the cliff, there's an opening that was found by uh, the... Um, one of the researchers in the early 1900s, 1902, I think it was, uh, from the Smithsonian Institution. And uh, he went in this uh, cave and found um, uh, remnants of uh, civilization, uh, people that were eight feet high, <clears throat> and he found all kinds of uh, interesting artifacts. And he ended up his voyage down the Colorado River to Kingman, Arizona, where he uh, told the... Uh, story to the newspaper there and of course they printed it and people have been searching for that one entrance but it's very difficult to get to now and it's guarded uh you can't get in there but apparently the uh the tunnel is about 40 miles long and uh there's just all kinds of interesting uh, artifacts from different civilizations in there so these so, so there are these ancient civilizations, and and you said that they do connect to Groom Lake. And I want to kind of go back here and and talk a little bit more about Groom Lake, and what you witnessed at Groom Lake personally, um, with Bob okay. Lazar. Okay, let's go to the uh, history of Groom Lake. It was originally uh, there was a strip built there in 1942 <clears throat> at the beginning. And this of the, is what we call Area 51, Groom Lake. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there was a strip built there. Uh, in 1942, which was used as a Navy training base and was closed down in 1945 after the war. Then in 1949, the Seabees moved in there, Navy Seabees, and they built uh, some huge underground, uh, well, we could call them hangars or spaces, and that's where the uh, <clears throat> Roswell, um, some of the Roswell uh, uh, crashes were taken. Uh, then in 1955, just completely by accident, did... Lockheed Corporation decided to use Groom Lake for the U-2. And uh, they started building uh, uh, hangars, uh, not exactly where the uh, the first runway was, but over to the uh, west. And uh, uh, that whole that whole area became <clears throat> a, uh, a huge area for uh, uh, saucer exploration and, uh, and things like that. In 1988, uh, I met Bob Lazar, <clears throat> Uh, came over to my house uh, with a friend of mine, Gene Huff, and uh, Bob had worked at the Los Alamos as a scientist there, and we started talking about UFOs, and uh, he uh, he kept rolling his eyes, and we asked him about what he thought. He said, it can't be true. There's no saucers. Uh, I explored all around uh, uh, the uh, Los Alamos area, and if there'd have been anything like that, I would have found it out. Well, over the next few months, we kind of, uh, we kind of, um, convinced Bob that there was something and he called up Dr. Teller, the father of the H-bomb who we had met at Los Alamos and asked him for a job and uh, Teller said, do you want to work here in California with me, Bob, or do you want to work out there at uh, in Nevada? And Bob said, I want to work up at Area 51. And then uh, in uh, November of uh, 1988, <clears throat> he was asked to go down to um, EG&G there at the airport at uh, McCarran and he went through three uh, technical interviews. And then the next thing I knew was on December 6th, he came over to my house and uh, sat down, and as he usually did in the evening, and uh, he said, I saw a disc today. And I said, what? And he said, I saw a disc. And I said, theirs or ours? He said, theirs. I said, you hey, went wait, to Groom what Lake? Year was, what year was that? 1988. Okay. And I said, theirs or ours? And he said, theirs. And I said, you went to Groom Lake? He said, yeah. And uh, 
I said, well, what did you come over here for? They're obviously following you. Why don't you find out what's going on and then come back and tell me? And he said, John, you have taken so much uh, uh, baloney over the past six months that I've known you that I wanted to tell you it's true. I saw it. I touched it. I was in it. And uh, it's all true. So that was uh, when Bob started to work at uh, Area 51, or not so much Area 51, but um, S4, which is about 15 miles south of Groom Lake. And uh, in March, March 22nd of uh, 1989, Bob took us to the uh, northeast part of Groom Lake to watch one of the test flights, which occurred on a, a Wednesday a Wednesday evening. And we saw for ourselves that indeed it was a, uh, uh, a saucer. Uh, it was extraterrestrial and, uh, we witnessed it. Do you witnessed it flying? Right. It came up, uh, we were about, uh, 10 miles from the Groom Lake area and we looked, uh, it was, uh, Groom Lake sat behind the row of hills between us and, uh, and Groom Lake and we watched it come up behind. <clears throat> rise above the uh, hills and then go flitting around in what they call these gravity jumps where they'll disappear in one place and instantly appear in another place. Let me talk about the gravity jumps a little bit because I've now, I've seen some of your writing um, on um, how you feel about Newton and Einstein's theories of gravitation and how you feel that they're incomplete or inaccurate. And I wanted to do, without going into too much detail about that, Discuss what the alternate theory of gravity that you you have come to believe is how these saucers work, or what is the technology behind that propulsion, that that gravitational jumping. Okay, first of all, uh, everything that uh, Einstein wrote is uh, is wrong. I wrote a twelve-page essay on uh, exactly why it's wrong. And yes, I've read I've read the essay. So okay. And, uh, the, <clears throat> there is no limit to the, uh, the speed of, uh, anything. And, <clears throat> uh, the, the way that the craft fly is they produce a, um, a force, uh, actually an attractive force that can pull, uh, a part of space towards you. Space is not an empty, the thing of what, what we think it's, uh, may contain one atom of hydrogen, uh, per square meter, but in fact, it's a, a fabric that can be pulled and they, uh, these saucers pull this fabric towards the saucer, turn it off, and uh, they are instantly hundreds of thousands of miles away from where they pulled this force. And that's how they travel. Well, there's there's a one video. I think it was uh, Gulf Breeze, Florida. I don't know if you're f- if you're familiar with that video, where there's a there, there's there's a tiny ball. It's a, you know it's obviously you know uh, a UFO. It's a, you know an unidentified craft. It's there, and then literally within a, I mean within a millisecond, this thing just just flies away. Right. It's 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 there, and then it's gone. And when they slowed down the video, and went frame by frame. What they found was that this thing was moving across the sky; that it didn't just disappear, but that there was, but that it was in fact moving at out out of the range of the camera. Right, right. And I want to, I want to, I want to jump back to my previous question a little bit. I read the paper that you've written disputing the the Einstein hoax or the relativity hoax, and I understand the arguments that you're making to describe why relativity might be inaccurate. But I haven't seen anything that convinces me that you understand how this gravitational slippage or pullage works to describe gravity in a way more accurately than, say, Einstein has. Well, right. So I'm just trying to get to this point. We you don't know. I mean, and even even the people, the technical people in the government, the people who are studying this stuff at Groom Lake or in the underground tunnels, they don't understand it either. No. Or. Nobody, no, no humans understand this technology. They don't know what um, gravity is, what creates gravity. They do know how they travel, like pulling this, uh, uh, creating a gravitational force and, uh, and pulling space towards you. But as far as what exactly what gravity is, nobody knows that yet. But the aliens do, because they have this technology that's allowed their saucers to move that way. Absolutely. The aliens uh, uh, created us. Uh, they made, they uh, invented, and then uh, 
uh, engineered and then produced mankind and uh, put us on this planet. And they're the ones that uh, are most are seen uh, in the disc traveling back and forth. And uh, they're just taking care of their uh, their progeny, their their mankind, which they put on this planet. So, so, so this is a good segue to 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 ask about uh, aliens and the government and their involvement in international affairs and their involvement uh, and 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 the extent of their contact with with humankind. In your in your experience in your research, what is the extent uh, of alien contact with humankind, both you know in you know throughout history and today, and um, currently you know as of two thousand and thirteen. Are there certain groups of aliens working with our government um, and, you know, uh, working on projects and, you know, maintaining diplomatic relationships and things like that? Yeah, there's no such thing as diplomatic relationship. Uh, Yes, they do work with us. We work with them. Unfortunately, we picked uh, the unsavory um, type of uh, ET to work with because they gave us all kinds of uh, uh, interesting... uh, uh, information and all kinds of uh, <clears throat> of um, technology, but not to share with mankind. They don't want to see us uh, advance from where we are. And uh, <clears throat> yes, the uh, um, we're totally under the control of the ETs. They're the ones that create the wars. Uh, nothing happens without uh, they have uh, created it uh, uh, or uh, made. The, um, made it possible that, uh, that 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 could occur. Can I ask? You said that we made a we we're working with an unsavory type of ET. Are there multiple types of ETs out there? And do you know specifically how many, or just a few races that you know of? Or can you give me like a brief synopsis of that? Okay, our universe is infinite. It goes forever. If I were trying to say how many types of ETs are, I would have to go a trillion times a trillion times a trillion times a trillion for a hundred thousand years. I sure, but I mean I mean currently visiting our planet active in our politics, manipulating what is going on, visiting us on a regular basis. What's there's eight what's types. that eight types. Yeah. And can you tell me what those are? No, not uh, all of them. Uh, they're uh, they're the different the grays are the mm-hmm. small ones and they're the ones that do the uh the uh, abductions, we get abducted at uh, two years old, four years old, uh, six year old, uh, eight years old, and 13 years old. And these abductions are just to see that everything is progressing normally and, uh, and that these, uh, uh, their progeny are, are going along uh, okay. If we were to be able to somehow uh, remove the uh, cloaking feature of saucers, the sky would be black because there's so many of them going back and forth to the moon, uh, abducting humans. The, the abduction experience, uh, occurs when they take you from your, uh, bed at night and take you to the moon, do the various things that they want to do, and then put you back in your bed. And the whole thing takes about 40 minutes to get to the moon and back, or do they just abduct you locally? No, to abduct you, do their experiment on the moon, and bring you back. The whole thing takes about 40 minutes. And it's all done without your knowledge and while you're asleep. Right. Now, this is... So wait, no, I wanted to get back to the different types. So are there there different types of greys, or is there just one group of greys? Are there the greys... The ones I know about... Collaborating with anybody? Yeah, go ahead and tell me what the ones you understand. The the small greys are the ones that do the... um, the work that I just told you about. The large greys are the ones that were the, uh, Charles Hall wrote a book, uh, about the ones that uh, he encountered in 1955, uh, up at, um, uh, what they used to call Indian Springs Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, we built, uh, an area for them. It's a, it's a about 15 miles north, uh, west of the tip of Dogbone Lake. It's actually between Dogbone Lake and Groom These Lake. are the tall whites, I think he called them. The tall them. whites, right. Yeah. Okay. Then the others are the reptilians. Now, the reptilians were here long before we were on Earth, uh, and they have a lot to do with uh, uh, 
uh, how we develop and uh, where we go. Uh, every once in a while, people will get a glimpse of it. I talked to a scientist who worked with a reptilian uh, in one of our uh, laboratories, and he said the only difference you could see when he was working with you was that every once in a while he would blink an inner eyelid. Uh, we humans only have one eyelid, but apparently the reptilians have two, and that inner one they blink every once in a while. But otherwise they look just like humans. Right. Now, do any of these species actually walk among us in, in so far as, I mean, if I walk down the street in New York, is there a chance that I could bump into an E.T.? Absolutely, because uh, uh, mankind, there's about, of the all the beings that are walking around on Earth, uh, about uh, 75% are mankind, and the rest, 25%, are all the different types of E.T.s, and they walk around all the time, you can see them, they're particularly prevalent in, in uh Las Vegas, because every once in a while, uh, I, I've heard more stories of people encountering ETs uh, uh, in in and around Las Vegas. Well, this is a rumor that I heard. I think on some TV show that the aliens at Groom Lake like to like to dress up in disguise and go into Las Vegas and gamble. I don't but, know whether they gamble. I don't know whether they, <laughs> Dress up in disguise, but of course they can change their shape and figure at at will. Well, yeah, and I mean this is this is another common theme that I found through you know that many UFO researchers have 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 come to the conclusion of. I mean, which is that these that that some of them, not all of them, can shape shift into whatever they want. Um, you know, of course, there's there's the reptilians. They always talk about them as the big shapeshifters, but uh, are are other alien species able to shape shift just as easily? Apparently, but I don't know too much about that. So, um, before we, we now, since we're talking about about aliens, I want to talk a little bit about anti-gravity too. Um, and were they the ones is that, that the same? Is anti-gravity the same thing as this gravity jumping or the the pulling that you're you're discussing? Or no, there's they... all different. There's all different types of anti-gravity. Now, the ones that uh, my father worked with in 1952, between 1952 and 1956, was a, a very crude method of anti-gravity. But they're all are are all different kinds of it, and uh, we certainly have um, developed it in the past uh, 40, 50 years since it was initially discovered. Uh, we do have uh, ways of uh, using anti-gravity, but certainly not as advanced as uh, what we see the uh, ETs are capable of. So what what level of anti-gravity technology do we have do we as humans has uh, or have and and you know the kind that your father had worked on what 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 does that allow us to do? I'm not exactly sure but a, f- a friend of mine was at Hill Air Force Base during a lockdown and he saw a, a diamond-shaped craft <clears throat> about um, 100 feet in um, in length, and he saw it cruise slowly uh, over hill, and then head off uh, into the sky at, at like a gravity jump, uh, just uh, kind of disappeared. Now, if it was going fast or just disappearing, I don't know. Hmm. So um, it could have been, but but that would be an example of human anti gravity. I mean, now now what does extraterrestrial anti gravity entail? Well, it's almost the same thing, except they just disappear from the spot that they're at and uh, instantaneously go, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles in a different direction. So, so that's now, I, how I this wanna, deep space so, travel is possible: is is through this 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 anti gravity and through this 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 pulling of space. That's how these these uh, these species of UFOs are able and and these aliens are able to get to us and go back to their home planets, you know, within minutes, you know. That's right. That's so, uh, that's what they can do. My question is, if if there are humans that have seen these spaceships and have access to these kind of these anti-grav spaceships, were these ships that were allowed to fall into human hands, or did humans literally shoot aliens out of the air with military, you know, style intervention and take their crafts away from them? No. If we have if we have a craft, it's because they. Uh, they let us have it by either by faking a crash like Roswell, uh, or, uh, incidents like that. There's no way that uh, we could uh, actually shoot one down. And just from your experience as a pilot, 
if there was an unidentified object floating over a large um, U.S. Air- airport or city, the military would scramble fighter jets after that object within a matter of minutes, wouldn't they? They used to, but, but now they don't they, anymore. No. Why is that? Well, because they know uh, that they're there, that they uh, are uh, are part of uh, our uh, our makeup, and uh, that there's nothing they can do. What would they do? Take a picture? They don't need a picture. They've got plenty of pictures. There's nothing they can do to shoot it down. So now, uh, I, I, but how does a radar? I mean, how does a say an air force or a, a, a marine radar operator? tracking an unidentified object through airspace make the distinction this has to be a UFO don't bother intercepting just by the airspeed or I mean if you're a, if you're a radar operator you know very well <laughs> talk about the strange stuff that you see just let it go by and uh, well that's what I'm asking I want I want a little bit of the inside dirt what what are they seeing on their screens that make them make that distinction uh blips that go uh Six thousand miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, well, that, we would, we that would definitely tell me that that, that, <laughs> uh, that you know something is up there. And so, so, I mean, it seems like from what you're telling us, every you know, you know, everybody's aware of this. The government is aware of it. Um, they're actively participating in it. But what I want to do is, I want to take take the conversation back a couple to. Uh, to I want to take take our conversation back about two thousand years. And I want to go to, um, I want to go all the way back to the founding of religion, shamanism, and then, you know, things like Gnosticism, uh, in the West and, and things like that, the mystic traditions. And there, there's been something that I've been reading about recently called the alien demon connection. I'm not sure if, if you're familiar with it, John, but I wanted to ask, uh, your thoughts on it, uh, on, um, and there are different opinions as to whether the aliens are demons or the demons are aliens or what they are, but I'm, I was curious if you had any information on that subject particularly or if that has ever come up in your research. Well, uh, before I answer that, I want to tell you, any of these questions you're asking me could be answered by reading any of the books written by Lou Baldin. Uh, that's B-A-L-D-I-N. You can get it on Amazon.com or Lulu.com or any of those. And uh, he has written about four or five books that are absolutely fantastically interesting and explain all this. Uh, but in answer to your question now, which was um, um, religion, the uh, the ETs create the religions, all of them, so that we have a, uh, a guide of uh, where we're going and uh, what we should be doing. Uh, more clearly, they want us to live with integrity and without envy, hate, or greed and to express love to our family members each and every day. That's all we have to do. Um, there are a billion times a billion Earths like we're on. It's essentially a prison planet. And the reason we're here is because in one of our previous lives and uh, um, afterlives are, are uh, for sure that each one of us, uh, you, Jake, and, uh, and me and everybody else have lived uh, at least uh, maybe 25 to 30 lives before this, we're here because we screwed up somehow, and uh, we have to uh, uh, we have to uh, go on uh, learning. We have to go on learning how to live with integrity without envy, hate, greed, which is something that we have missed previous to this lifetime. You know, and that's interesting because if you look at any of the major religions and you look at any of the major uh, mystic um, aspects of the religion. Those are major parts of it. Humility, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, unconditional love, uh, you know, uh, releasing jealousy, releasing envy, releasing hate, you know, taking those emotions out of your life and living, you know, as you said, without, you know, with integrity and without envy and without hate and without greed. Well, not only that, but the, also the concept of a moral code or code of personal conduct that is handed down from a force that is from the heavens. Right. That is not of the humans, because humans don't have to listen to other humans. But if the authority comes from the sky, or from a god, or a demigod, or an alien, then somehow that authority is more important than just, say, another human telling you what to do. So, it's an interesting it's an interesting um, concept that religion was handed down. In, all religion is, is... So, if... You said that all wars are because of aliens. Everything happens. Why would aliens want us to be at war with each other? 
Well, we're uh, mixed up with a, uh, a uh, for another word, for lack of a word, a, a bad type of alien uh, who uh, there's good and evil in the universe to equal amount of each one. And we happen to get mixed up with the evil ETs and, uh, they just like the wars for whatever reason. I've been going on for, um, long before, um, uh, we ever got here and wars like Afghanistan, Iraq, all that that's specifically engineered by the ETs for some reason. And I don't know what that reason is. Okay. So I want to jump back to the, um, 1970s. I was reading um, your bio, your biography and some of um, the things that you've done. And it seems like in the period there in the mid-70s, you were doing a lot of international flying for, I don't know, smaller or sort of rogue airlines overseas. And you were actually contracting with the CIA and um, inter- interdicting gun weapon smugglers or actually being involved in weapons and ammunition running to militia groups. Can you briefly give me an overview of that t- period of time and what your what your view of the world was in this pre-alien John Lear um, sort of contract pilot period of your life? Because that no, was well, really it, fascinating to me. Not that I know things. anything now, but in those days I knew absolutely nothing. I uh, unwittingly went to work for uh, a CIA uh, uh, operation that uh, was responsible for ferrying forward air control airplanes from the Cessna factory in uh, Wichita to Nha Trang in Vietnam, and I did that for four years. And after that, I uh, went over to Cambodia. I flew for an airline there called uh, Kamira Khas um, that was run by a, a Chinese uh, mm-hmm. in uh, in the um, uh, developing the rice business. And right after that, I went up to Laos uh, again for the CIA uh, with Continental Air Services Inc. And I flew up there and, uh, Continental Air Services Inc. did the same thing as Air America. And, uh, which was uh, smuggling heroin for, and guns back and forth? They might have, but we didn't. Uh, oh. I didn't because all, those airlines both operated in country. You're not going to sm- smuggle, uh, heroin in country. You'd have to have a, an outlet to go somewhere with it. So General, Vang Pao, who was the person that we, we were supporting, uh, if there was any smuggling, uh, being done, it was him that was doing it with his own airplanes. It wasn't, uh, either Air America or, uh, or Continental Air Services. And, um, so you, uh, so the, uh, so the heroin smuggling was being done, uh, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, like it's being done out of, uh, Afghanistan now, right in the Hindu Kush. It's the largest producing uh, uh, area, uh, drug producing area in the world now. And uh, I believe we've actually huge. seen photos of soldiers guarding poppy fields. Right, that's in the Hindu Kush, and it's a perfect area both in altitude and weather uh, for the poppy. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the CIA or whoever it is that does it uh, uh, grows the poppy and uh, harvests it, and uh, and then distributes it. So you know what? Yeah. So no, no. I guess well, the, what I wanted to kind of get back into was there is this sort of secret trade, this black market underground that that is basically sort of gun smuggling, drug smuggling, ammunition smuggling that all goes on. Um, the CIA controls some of it, but it all goes on with these like smaller contract pilot outfits. And, it, it used to, not anymore. It used to. Oh, not anymore. But back in the days when you were doing it, all of that stuff was run through these sort of front airlines. Right. right. But and now the Air Force just does it themselves. <laughs> <laughs> they just run all the drugs and guns themselves. Right. Which is which is not surprising. I mean, and, and the CIA does what? They fly drones. <laughs> they do everything to support it. I mean, uh, but uh, that's their job. They're, yeah, so they're, that, that is their job, unfortunately. But, um, so, I wanted to ask you also to, to, to move us back to the, to the, um, to, to the realm of UFOs a little bit. There was, uh, a cosmonaut named Maria Popovich who, uh, had come out. I'm trying to get the article up here now. And, uh, she said that, uh, ETs, uh, warn of cat, that, that, that cataclysms will unify human consciousness. Um, 
I, I, and I was just curious as to what your thoughts were to, you know, uh, the credibility of, of, of her statements and, uh, you know, what your thoughts are on, uh, on that situation. ETs give us all kinds of stories about what's coming on, what's going on. But the basic thing is, uh, is we were created by them. We were put here. Uh, we are trying to, when, when we were born, whenever it was, how many, thousands or years ago we were given a soul and that soul will be with us forever uh we're going to live forever there's no way we can die uh our physical body can die but uh we will we will live forever and uh, so whatever is given to uh popovich or anybody else uh are just stories to uh to uh, distract us or lead us into a different direction about uh you know whatever their current story is i might say that uh, Yuri Gagarin, the closest he ever got to space was the top of the ladder he had to climb to to get the picture of him on top of a spacecraft. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> um, that. That was a, a complete fabrication, uh, as many of our flights were. Many of our uh, Mercury, um, our uh, Apollo, uh, actually all of our Apollos were fake. Uh, the so the moon, landings, the moon landings were fake? Totally fake. I mean, all you have to do is look at some of the stuff uh, that's on the Internet, uh, some of the great um, the great videos that show exactly how they did it and, and how they faked it. It's just no possibility did uh, any of the Apollo, uh, Apollo missions go. Now, uh, 50 years later, uh, we might be on the moon, but it was, would have been with the help of ETs. So, uh, you talked about the moon and you, and, and you talk about, um, you know, how, how, how the ETs utilize the moon. Um, so I want to talk about the moon a little bit because, because there are a lot of theories that, that, that are out there about the moon. And, um, one of the things I believe that you talk about is that the, the moon has an atmosphere. Um, and that there are bases on the moon, and that part, and that in part, when humans die, uh, their souls are ferried there by the greys. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, that was a theory I had. First of all, the moon uh, is about thirty-eight uh, uh, billions of of uh, light years ago. It was created on Jupiter, and it's been ferried around the different places in the solar system. And uh, it ended up uh, here uh, about 15,000 years ago, uh, mainly to help with the pro- process of the human mankind that was being uh, uh, grown here on Earth. The moon has a gravity of 70% that of Earth. Uh, it has an atmosphere equal to about uh, 18,000 feet. Here, if we were to climb up to a, a mountain to 18,000 feet, that is the... Uh, equal to the atmosphere on the moon. There's a civilization on the moon that's equal to uh, at least half a billion people. Uh, they have, they live just like here. Uh, they have uh, homes, they have cities, they have uh, uh, towns, they have railroads, they have uh, aerial transportation, they have mining, uh, they have uh, farming, all kinds of stuff. The ETs, the greys, use the underpart of the uh, moon uh, underneath the surface for their laboratories. And that's where they take uh, uh, the ab- abductees uh, under the surface. So basically you have two sets of um, um, civilizations, the one on the surface that is basically like mankind, didn't come from Earth, was uh, was created or grown somewhere else, and, uh, and either put on the moon or, or grew on the moon. And these stories are taken from uh, Howard Menger in 1956 from when he was taken to the moon. Uh, also, um, um, the, uh, the other one, I forget what the guy that would, um, <clears throat> the guy that was mixed up in the, uh, UFOs, I forget his name. But basically, that's what's going on with the moon. So wouldn't we be able to see colonies of people on the surface of the moon with high-powered telescopes? Yeah, I've got some great pictures. Uh, no, we wouldn't be able to see them from, uh, Earth, because the most access we can get to is about 21 inches. And it's very difficult to see anything with that. But what I use for my research are the photos that came out of the Lunar Orbiter series. There was five um, 
lunar orbiter camera ships that were sent between 1965 and 1967, basically or allegedly to look for photos for the Apollo missions to land at. And these were right. very clear photos and uh, had ex- excellent re- resolution. And at that time, NASA didn't know the extent of the of what was going on in the moon, and their airbrushing technique was not what it is today. So I can take a lot of those early uh, lunar orbiter photos and show you spectacular uh, 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 photos of towns and all kinds of civilization, mining operations, uh, buildings, uh, uh, what do they call them, bucket wheel excavators, all kinds of that stuff. But are those, these days, are those pictures on your website? Yeah, on the livingmoon.com. Livingmoon.com. So, uh, but after 1970, when they figured out there was a lot going on there, they were carefully airbrushed and uh, most recently digitally removed anything that would uh, show any evidence of uh, of life on the moon. So now, one of the things that um, Ingo Swan had said, who recently passed away, uh, unfortunately. Um, he was a he was he was a great reviewer, but um, one of the things that Ingo Swan had said is that at least on the Earth, that these that, that there are aliens that have bases here uh, in addition to on the Moon, and that the, and that they're under the water, they're under the deserts, and they're in the mountains. Um, now, what I'm most interested in is the ones that are under the water because the ocean is uh, is vastly unexplored by humans, you know, by and large. I mean, you know, we don't. Um, you know, the Mariana Trench, there's, you know, huge tracts of ocean that we have not mapped out, that we've not been to, that we haven't, you know, um, categorized, that we haven't, you know, you know, even, even, we don't have an inkling as to what's there. So, um, what are your thoughts on USOs, unidentified submerged objects, and, uh, and their relationship to, to the UFO phenomena? Yeah, there's thousands of base under the, uh, on, uh, on the ocean bed, uh, the Navy is aware of a lot of them, uh, but they're not going to say too much about them. Uh, and uh, yes, that uh, Ingo Swan really, uh, really had a um, uh, a good grasp of uh, what was uh, undersea. Uh, there's a huge base north of Hawaii. Uh, there's a, a base down by San Diego. I mean, there's just all kinds of them all over the place. Now, one interesting thing that I don't know whether you've read about. I discovered uh, <clears throat> driving back and forth to Reno from Las Vegas, halfway between there's a little town called Hawthorne, Nevada. And uh, as you go into town, on the right side of the road, it says uh, Naval Under- Undersea Warfare Center. And I'm wondering now, what in the hell, in the, he- in the middle of the Nevada desert, could there be a Naval Undersea Warfare Center? Well, it turns out that <clears throat> that uh, it's 3,300 feet down, or 4,300 feet down. They built an elevator. Uh, the Pacific Ocean underlies uh, the western half of the United States. And uh, one of the entrances is at uh, Moss Bay uh, in uh, Monterey Bay, where the submarines can just go down and, and get into this um, ocean that's under... The uh, United uh, Western part. You're of the saying United it's States. under the continental shelf of the right. Western United States, right? Yeah, they can they've go. Tunneled, to, uh, they've tunneled from where the middle of Nevada. No, they didn't. They didn't. I mean, they built an they, elevator shaft. Just an elevator shaft that goes down 4,300 feet from the center of Nevada, right, to the bottom of the continental shelf, right. <laughs> and the reason for that is all, all the uh, uh, the uh, high. Uh, technology, uh, naval, um, weapons, uh, and, uh, uh, munitions are made just across the street, uh, in Hawthorne, Nevada from this naval facility. And what they do is instead of driving all these heavy, uh, um, and massive, um, uh, munitions north through, uh, Reno to San Francisco or south to, um, Los Angeles or, or uh, San Diego, what they do is they just put them in these elevators, go down 4,300, and there's a, a huge submarine pen down there where they just load up these uh, munitions, uh, and uh, the submarine can go on its merry way. It goes back out the uh, entrance at Moss, 
uh, landing and uh, heads on to where it has to go. But this is a naturally occurring thing. It, I mean, is what you're saying is that is that naturally underneath the continental shelf, the ocean continues. Yeah, the only thing that's not natural is the uh, elevators that go down. There's one at. Um, Sorry, this the uh, continental Auckland. shelf is the whole reason that if there's an earthquake at the San Andreas fault line, that that California will literally fall into the ocean is because it's it, it is perched out there on a shelf. And that's, it might, but uh, that would assume that the ETs no, I mean that's the cata- that's the cataclysmic version, but that's where that myth comes from is because it is basically a big shelf that's hung out over the western edge of the continent. Right. So there's a base up at Lake Tahoe, one at Pyramid Lake, uh, of course, the one at uh, Hawthorne, and there's one at China Lake, the uh, Navy Air, Air Base. And all of these are being actively used today. Actively used today, yeah. Now, uh, go ahead, James, sorry. What do you think is the current state of the um, world government, United States in general, um, in specific and other other countries more generally in terms of our space program and space technology is there stuff going on that we don't know about or is our space program basically coming to an end like it looks like no our space program has been going on ever since 1970 when the um, original aquila uh, rockets were being sent up to build these um uh, these uh, weaponized platforms. There's 20 few, 24 orbiting weaponized platforms with uh, extremely high-tech weapons, um, which are used to, well, they did the Oklahoma Mira building, and they did the uh, uh, the New York uh, buildings 1, 2, and 7. And uh, right now, there's currently between four and 5,000 astronauts that work with the different agencies who have their own separate astronaut corps, the Army, Navy, uh, Marines, um, uh, NASA. Uh, there's all kinds of different ones. And sometimes they work together on projects, sometimes separate. But there's a huge um, space force. It's mostly based at the Kwajalein Islands in the South Pacific. The Kwajalein Islands. So let me ask you this. You say that there's these big space platforms and they are pointed down at us so that they can blow up buildings right when they want to right they're not pointed out to protect us from aliens no but that's what they like would like us to believe if we ever find oh yeah we got that we're going to protect us <laughs> we're going to protect ourselves from aliens oh of course well that's always what they say oh well it's for your own safety you know oh why are we doing all this count oh it's what's for your own safety well can i ask a really simple question which is why would we need big space platforms to blow up a building if we could just do it with like a b1 and a guided 500 pound bomb well the uh it seems like overkill to have a space platform just to blow up a building from orbit if we wanted to blow up a building we don't want a lot of rubble out there we want it like (laughs) buildings one and two where there was absolutely (laughs) nothing left you have to go straight down on it that's uh you know was explored thoroughly in judy wood's book uh where they're talking about uh molecular um uh disintegration where they completely uh, molecularize uh, the concrete and steel until there's nothing left. We You're don't talking like with like an ultrasound pulse or some some sort of frequency technology that causes the building to collapse. Yeah, it's not frequency technology, but uh, whatever knowledge they do, um, uh, you'll remember Hurricane Irwin was marched up from Florida where it was uh, activated, and then it sat off the coast for two days off the coast of New York, a hundred miles off the coast, and then it was used as part uh, of the um, weapon that was used to destroy Building 1, 2, and 7. So, so hold on. The World Trade Center attack. So, oh, yeah, actually, I want to back up and talk about this a little bit. This is interesting. (laughs) So, so the... So the World Trade Center attack. Let's 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 actually talk a little bit about this, and I and I think that you and I uh, have discussed this on a on a past in a past interview, John. Um, I'm not sure that we have, but I, I'm I'm pretty sure that we have anyway. Um, so, what is what are your thoughts on on the World Trade Center attack? Um, since you're, you you've you you've mentioned the um, space uh, plates and things like that, uh, I mean, what do you think happened that day? What happened was that they wanted an excuse to go into Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and to create the um, uh, the police state here in the United States. They needed a, 
a reason to do it. So they had to fake um, a terror act of terrorism. So what they did was uh, destroy buildings one and two and seven and say that it was the Arabs that did it, when in fact they didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah, and uh, so what actually happened that day, though? In, in, in your view, in your research, what actually took place? What hit the buildings? Who hit the buildings? Um, you know. It was a weapon call that uses uh, molecular uh, dissociation. And what it does is it destroys... Um, uh, it destroys uh, steel and <clears throat> and uh, concrete uh, to the size of about 80 microns, and then even gets smaller than that. And one of the interesting things at World Trade Center now, you can see that there's a pond in the middle of that where the buildings one and two used to stand. And the reason is, is because after the conflagration, after they uh, picked up all the... Uh, uh, the rubble, they started to build it again and they found out that, uh, the method of, uh, um, of, uh, dissociation of, uh, matter that they were using, uh, was not stoppable and, uh, it kept on going. And so if they started to build a building there, um, uh, it would just start to rust again. So what they had to do is take the center of uh, where the, uh, weapon was aimed and make a pond, make it a kind of a, a pool of water there that everybody looked at and said, oh, that's cool, you know, and then build around it. And how did you get, how did you come to that conclusion? Where did that come from? Uh, part from Judy Wood's book. Mm, okay. Now, who is Judy Wood, if you don't want me to ask him? I'm not familiar with her work. Judy Wood uh, wrote the um, definitive book on uh, on uh, the uh, 9-11. Uh, it's about 600 pages long. It has hundreds of uh, diagrams and photos and everything. And she lays out exactly uh, the method uh, of using um, uh, this uh, dis um, molecular dissociation uh, that was used to destroy these uh, buildings and how it works, and uh, it's really a fantastic book. It costs 50 bucks, and uh, you, you should really get a read on this thing. But again, I'm, I'm wondering, it, it poses a theory of molecular dissociation without exactly explaining how molecular dissociation actually works. Am I correct in assuming that? Uh, well, it actually works by taking uh, steel and uh, concrete and making it dust. Well, uh, right, but what is the technology that causes it to do that? I mean, right. what is what yeah, is what, what is the the weapon the weaponized right. version that we're talking about? She probably right. That's what we does need not to know. know how that works. Right. That's right. That's what we need to know, and uh, how the hurricane is used to uh, to amplify some of the uh, uh, technology. So. Unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our program. I mean, John, I, I I could talk to you for hours about this stuff, and and we have before. But um, why don't you just tell us uh, uh, if you have any final thoughts? Why don't you give us your final thoughts, and also uh, tell us a little bit about where we can find some more of your work? Well, most of it is on uh, thelivingmoon.com. Uh, I posted a lot on Godlike Productions for, but for some reason I was kicked off, and uh, uh, I just like to say. For the end here, for the conclusion, is the most important thing I have to offer here is to live your life with integrity, without envy, hate, or greed, and to express your love to your family each and every day. That's all you have to do. And if you're, when you pass away, uh, you get sent up to the fourth dimension. It's not the moon. We'll have to cover that at a different time. But uh, before you go into your next life, you go up to the fourth dimension and they take a look at uh, uh, all the good things you've done and all the bad things you've done. And if there's enough uh, uh, good things, you get to continue or stay up there. Uh, for lack of a better word, it's called heaven, but it's a million times better than heaven. And uh, that's that's all you need to know. You don't have to worry about the starving kids in Africa or the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. That's not your worry. Your worry is yourself, your soul, and taking care of that. 
So really, it's it's it it it, it, it goes back to the idea of well, change and and improvement starts with the individual person making the change and improvement because there's nothing that you can do about everybody else but you can at least change yourself. Right, we're not here to change the world, we're here for the world to change us. And that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I you know, I, yeah, I like that actually. That that was a well, good I way of putting that it. Perspective yeah, because I can. that's pretty much the way I live. I live my life if you you know, it doesn't matter what elaborate mythos you believe in or want to ascribe to or what version of history you choose. What really matters is the way you live your life every day, and if you can do that, as you say, without envy or greed, and living as a as an honorable person who has uh, who loves and nurtures his family and friends, that's, I mean, that's really, of course, the all we can hope for anybody. So, absolutely, a hundred percent correct. Thank you, John. Thank you for uh, for ending on that note and for uh, sharing all of your uh, information with us. It's been a very <laughs> fascinating interview. No, it has. Yeah, thank you so much, John, for joining us today. And uh, we'll have to do this again sometime. This uh, because there are, there there are a lot of a lot more subjects that we can cover, and okay. uh, you know, just just all all fascinating stuff. Remember, thelivingmoon.com dot com is where you can find more of uh, John's work, and make sure you go check that out. Uh, check that out. I've been on there before. And, uh, John, thanks a lot for joining us today. Just uh, stay with us until we end the program. Okay, thank you, guys. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I'm your host, Jake Kettle, and, of course, with me, as always, is uh, founder of Dose Nation, co-host of the podcast, and author of Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason, James Kent. James, thank you, as always. It's been thanks a, a lot, Jake. It's been we'll fun. It's been a great week. show. Remember to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation. Uh, we have a YouTube and a SoundCloud that we're going to be using and uploading some exclusive content on, so you can find that at youtube.com forward slash Dose Nation TV. And uh, if you want to find us on SoundCloud, you can follow us there at soundcloud.com forward slash Dose Nation. In, ad- in addition, if you go to our website, dosenation.com, you can make a donation uh, if you'd like. You can also uh, find all of our podcasts there. <clears throat> in addition, you can find James's book and uh, buy all of your books through our website because uh, we get an affiliate credit, and it helps us out a lot, and we really appreciate all of the support. So thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you all next week. Have a great, uh, have a great week, everybody.